Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1141, air date November 4th, 2022. The, the, the recent uh, DHS uh, leaks has, has really not told the entire story as to what actually happened on that whole situation. So could you please just give us your background and, and what you want to talk about there? Yeah, so my name is Dr. Shiva Iadure. Um, uh, you know, I, I've uh, run for Senate uh, twice. We'll probably do it again against Elizabeth Warren coming up in 2024. Uh, but I'm a scientist. You know, I uh, originally grew up in India um, many years ago. I came to the United States in 1970, but I've had a deep interest in medicine and also in politics. You know, I grew up in, in India, which had a caste system, and that's why my parents left that, uh, because your future is determined by uh, birth lottery. And um, so I was fascinated by politics as a young kid, why there was this caste system. But I was also fascinated by medicine, Todd, because my grandmother was a traditional healer, you know, in ancient systems of medicine. So when I came to the United States in 1970, I settled in New Jersey, came here when I was seven. And by the time I was 14, um, not only did I like sports growing up in Jersey, but I also was pretty adept at math. Uh, At the age of 14, I ended up going to New York University in one of their early computer science programs where 40 kids were selected from high school to learn software engineering. I finished that and still had some high school classes left and started working full time while going to high school at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, where I was hired as a full time research fellow as a 14 year old kid to do research on why babies were dying in their sleep, you know, using computing to monitor sleep patterns. Uh, but I was also asked to, in those days, to convert, you know, those medical colleges and organizations had this thing called the inner office mail system, which is how people uh, communicated independent of the telephone system. And I was asked to convert that entire system, inbox, outbox, folders, memo, CC, into the electronic version. It had never been done before. You could send these simple text messages, that's not what I'm talking about, but that entire system, I converted that to the electronic version, named it email wrote 50,000 lines of code, all before I came to MIT. So email was actually created at a small medical college for civilian use to move secretaries from the typewriter to the keyboard. It wasn't done by the military, so it's a complete uh, lie, actually. Um, so anyway, came to MIT, um, and I didn't even know about MIT until two weeks before I applied. And uh, I, I went to an interesting school where uh, we were sort of the outsiders, so no one ever gave me any advice. Um, I, um, so anyway, came to MIT, but was, uh, not really, you know, I, I, had, I was very good at engineering, but I was deeply interested in systems. So even as a teenager at MIT, I started building, um, we started a newspaper, we started organizing people, we organized a food service workers. I really was interested in understanding these political systems and medical systems. So as an activist from a kid, always building these bottoms up movements, ended up going in and out of MIT, was very, very uh, disappointed that medicine didn't take a whole systems approach to the body but did four engineering degrees at MIT, started many companies. In fact, had my second uh, uh, stint with email where I created the first uh, technology to automatically analyze and route email of a contest I won for the Clinton White House when I was doing my PhD. And we ended up starting another company to analyze and route email. In fact, the building I'm in. I remember when email first came on, that was like late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, so, but this was in 78. So yeah. email, actually, a lot of people don't understand, you don't need the internet. It was an inner office application. Gotcha. So when I created that system, and I got the first US copyright in 82, and it went into the Library of Congress, shortly thereafter, to your point, 
people started creating like Eudora, these applications, but I was the first one to create it. Someone else would have created it, I'm not saying, but I was the first one to do it. Right. Right. So yeah, so email started coming out as an inner office application, and when the web came, Todd, then it became a consumer application. So a lot of the young people under the age of 40 may not know that, but you don't need the internet for email. Right? In the old days, we just wired, and we had wide area networks. Sure. Or local area networks. So anyway, so my history was building large-scale systems, political activism on the ground, and science. So uh, in 2003, um, after doing various companies, I came back to MIT and I created, if people want to go to a site called vashiva.com, which I'm sharing here, I think it's coming up, right? Uh, you can go and look at from the invention of email, the many other things I've created. We have a, a Truth, Freedom, and Health movement now, Cytosolve, etc. But the reason I wanted to share that was that the journey for me was always around systems, medicine. You know, that's sort of the heart of it, engineering systems. Mm -hmm. And Cytosolve, my latest invention, allows you to mathematically model the entire human body on the computer, even at the cellular level, so we could actually figure out how medicines work without killing animals. And that was my PhD work. And that's a very nice technology company that we've built. Uh, we, it's, 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 it's radical, you know, just as email was. So I'm, I'm curious, has the mRNA technology been run through that system? Or is that well, no, what, what we did was, you know, in 2019, I was invited by the National Science Foundation to give the prestige lecture where, I, where we used Cytosolve to really give a complete new approach to the immune system. This was in 2019 before all the stuff should hit the fan, all right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, this was in a room full of 200 engineers and scientists out at Purdue at the NSF Center, and I said, look, the immune system model that is being used today to develop, you know, the jab comes from a 1915 model of the immune system, which is a two-box model of the adaptive and innate. I said, the immune system is far more complex, and it's about the right medicine for the right person at the right time, and forcing everyone to do the same thing, and, and no one disagreed. So shortly thereafter, if you go look at, you know, we're not on Twitter anymore, but on January was our, you know, I was running for Senate at the time, where we actually built the massive movement in New Jersey and we stopped the vaccine mandate. Independent, sorry to say about what the Kennedy guys were doing. Kennedy's been in this medical freedom movement, but he sits on it, always wants to negotiate in the back end. So it's a lo longer discussion we'll talk about. Then we ran the Fire Fauci movement. We delivered 150,000 signatures. So I've always been about building these bottoms up movement because when you take history and you look back at how what what is that always when it's been bottoms up movements, not being top down running an NGO telling people how to do bottoms up movements but never actually doing it. So um, yeah, so we did that original research, presented it, and started educating people that this entire notion of you know subverting the immune system by going and hitting the adaptive just to get antibodies is a very rudimentary way of really supporting immune health. It's fundamentally flawed. And it was important for me to get that because of my activism, because as a scientist of Gravitas, if you go look at 2020, I did a tweet when the pandemic came. I said, this will go down in history, is intended to destroy economies, to destroy uh, you know, health, and to suppress freedom. And in fact, shortly thereafter, we wrote a letter to Trump. We said, don't do the lockdowns, follow a personalized precision approach. We started the fire Fauci camp when we delivered 100. Trump didn't listen to any of it, unfortunately, right? He yeah. kept Fauci, and, and any of the medical doctors, they came a year later, Todd, too little too late. 
You know, yeah. had yeah. they spoken up now with their megaphones, we wouldn't have had this crap. So anyway, well, the, the, the problem with Trump is that his personnel decisions were horrific, no matter the intentions. He brought the swamp in from day one. The yeah. swamp was there and he never got rid of the swamp. He, you know, Hillary never got locked up. Others got locked up. His followers are locked up. Um, he did for big pharma what Obama did for big banks. Banks were tanking. Obama saved them. Big pharma has been tanking. So yeah. If you look at Pfizer's revenue since 19, and we brought this up back then since two, for the last 10 years, they've been precipitously dropping because the entire pharmaceutical development model is based on an archaic model of in vitro, in vivo, preclinical testing, which is not based on mechanistic understanding. So anyway, this is my field. So I was perfectly poised to talk about this from a yeah. deeply scientific perspective when other scientists were silent and they knew that this stuff was flawed. But because of the platform- Pharma was basically losing their revenue streams, right? So they were losing, they were tanking, so they needed vaccines. So if you look at Pfizer's revenue went from 65 billion to 40 billion by 2020. After Operation Warp Speed 2021, the revenue goes up to 80 billion and now it's gonna hit 100 billion. That's Pfizer alone. Mm -hmm. So Trump saved big pharma. So, Before we get, move on, anyway. I just want your opinion because you're extremely knowledgeable. What, what do you think the agenda is behind the facts? Is it, is it well, just money? Well, so, yeah, so I'm gonna take something that's a big elephant in the room. You know, you see all the stuff, there's graphite and this and that and five. Let's just put that over here because as a scientist, you have to, if you're, if you're gonna claim that, that's a hypothesis. You have to do the test, not like looking at crap under a microscope. People have sent me this. It's like garbage, you know? I, I look under microscopes, it doesn't mean anything. But what we can't, what we do know, when you look at the material facts of power, profit, and control, pharma's been tanking. Look, I was part of the pharmaceutical program, uh, uh, Popey, back in 1986 when I was an uh, undergrad at MIT. And we knew pharma, entire model was tanking because it's a medieval model of doing pharmaceutical development. You find something in the lab, then you test in vitro, then you kill a bunch of animals, which is, by the way, unnecessary. And then you go file an IND, and then you go to phase one, phase two, phase three. It's a 13-year process, $5 billion, and the crap coming out actually hurt, still hurts people. Yeah. So even the FDA over the last five to 10 years has not been approving many of these drugs. So pharma spends more and more money on R&D, and they're getting less and less drugs allowed because of the toxicity. So this is a material fact. So when you look at that right in front of you, pharma's economically been tanking. What Trump did, and this entire quote unquote vax, is essentially um, saved a, a, a failing multi-trillion dollar industry. That's what it's fundamentally done. All the other stuff we can talk about, but you have to do the science. But about this, it's right in our face. And what's unfortunate is, you find all these podcasters, all these people don't talk about this. It's almost like they don't want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is this massive economic gain of a failing industry. And that's so sort of, that's, what, that's, that's what's happening with the, that's what's, and the same phenomenon is happening with the DHS leaks as we'll talk about. Yeah, yeah. so real quick and then we'll move on, but why the push for the everyone to be vaxxed? Is it just to remove a control group? Is it just, is it well, 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 think about it. Okay, again, go back to the economics, okay? Yeah. Imagine this, Todd. You and I start a company and, and the government enforces everyone has to drive our cars. Like, you have to drive Todd and Shiva's cars. You have a captive audience. And four major, maybe they give it to three other car manufacturers, right? 
So you've created, this is the epitome of what we're seeing in every aspect. We see this in China and Russia, where we say that government and the private corporations are one. We call it state capitalism. In the United States, that's what's happened. That government, the lobbyists, and corporations have become one. So what happened during the pandemic? You know, Costco, Walmart, Amazon, all these guys made a shitload of money, okay? Mm -hmm. The small sure. businesses, like the ones you and I and others run are the ones that tanked. So as a way of yeah. consolidating wealth, 600 billionaires increased their wealth by $2.3 trillion. These are the big elephants in the room. Mm -hmm. We can talk about other theories, which should be, got, yeah, should be explored, and you have to apply the scientific method. But let's mm -hmm. talk about, from Elon Musk to Jeff Bezos, they went from, $2.3 trillion in revenue increase during a period when every working person was being hammered. That's like right in our face. Right. And that occurred during Trump. Even though I supported him, gave him money, was a big supporter of his, the reality was you have to look at the material facts. What were the actions? No, I, it's the consequences of behavior is what's important, not what people say. Yep. So let's move on. What, let's move to the, well, I'll, I'll let you go where you want to go next. Yeah, so, so I think it was good we covered this journey. So my journey has been as a scientist, a, you know, a very uh, dedicated scientist, engineer, build stuff. In uh, 2018, you know, we decided to run against a fake Indian here, Elizabeth Warren. The Republican establishment in Massachusetts, you might as well call them Democrats. Okay, there is one unit party. Uh, Massachusetts is a center of innovation. It's a center where they actually innovate. Uh, uh, stuff to oppress other people. So the concept of the Uniparty, you can go back to Massachusetts. It's one. Mm -hmm. So we ran, you would have think the Republican Party would have embraced a guy like me, meritocracy, innovator, but instead uh, they wanted nothing to do with me because they had some fool that was running who basically photoshopped pictures with Trump. It's a whole other story. So we ran as independents against Elizabeth Warren. We had a great bus. It was called Only the Real Indian Can Defeat the Fake Indian. Huge signs. Um, and the city of Cambridge actually tried to tell me that I had to remove the banner off my bus. We sued them in federal court and we won, okay? So I'm a fighter, right? So to me, this was extension of fighting and exposing <clears throat> Warren, who's actually has nothing to do with race. The woman has no integrity, okay? That's what the fake Indian, real Indian thing was, and it was a great meme. Um, anyway, the next year, in 2020, we ran in the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. Again, no support from the which is obvious, right? You don't expect anything from them. But what we did, Todd, was we built a massive ground campaign. Massive, okay? And uh, I can play a video of that ground campaign for you. you. You may like it. Your audience may like it. What we did, Todd, is, and I'll get this. So in, um, in 2020, we ran as Republicans in the primary, and we did a total bottoms-up ground movement. We ended up getting 3,000 volunteers in a primary, raised close to two and a half million dollars in a primary from dollar donations, five dollars, people from all over the country donated. And I was using my platform to talk about all sorts of issues. And people were very excited. Wow, we got a, an actually intelligent guy who's actually a true American epitome of the American dream running, sure. you know, so it was obvious for them. And we had uh, 25,000 lawn signs, Todd. Was this for the, for the Senate? Primary, Senate primary. So it was a massive campaign. I mean, yeah. we energized people who were what I call dark matter, who were typically didn't want to vote. 60% of the people who came out to vote were people who never voted even. 
Lots of mothers and women came out to vote, and we looked at our demographics. So we were bringing out all these other people who had lost faith in the system. And 10,000 bumper stickers. You know, you can see the strength of a campaign just by seeing how many people were putting lawn signs. So think about 25,000 lawn signs. You couldn't travel around Massachusetts without seeing a lawn sign or huge, massive billboards on the highways. All right? Yeah. The Republican establishment found a guy no one even knew. Maybe, Todd, and this is not exaggerating, I personally saw maybe one lawn sign, and I traveled to every city in Massachusetts in our bus, and we hit the ground, massive support. The, the, on the ground, the word was Dr. Shiva won by a landslide, okay? Um, so September 1, as you know, is the, is the, let me get my, this here. Um, so September 1, 2020 was a primary, okay? Yeah. So we had a huge party set up and, and uh, the, the understanding was Dr. Shiva won by a landslide. Well, the results come in, Todd, and we win in one county only, which was all hand-counted paper ballots, Franklin County, white working class community. They still love this dark-skinned Indian American guy because they saw him as one of their own. And in every other county, Todd, it was 60-40, 60-40, 60-40. Now you gotta understand, there were people on our camp and they said, Shiva, you're only gonna lose if they cheated. And I got, that doesn't occur in America. Like I didn't even, it, it, it didn't compute to me. Like, how would you do that? Like, that's really evil, right? Yeah, yeah. This is America. But when I saw those numbers coming in, I remember at my, at our big event, our party, we said, I'm glad we have the second amendment in the United States, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. where I started thinking, because it was shocking. Yeah. And that led yeah. and that led me into starting to want to understand how all of this worked. I had to put my hat on now as an engineering systems guy, as an MIT engineer, as an electrical engineer, mechanical engineer. I started really like it was nonstop reading everything I could get about how these voting systems work. And if you remember, I was the first one who put out this video exposing that these systems had a feature in there called the weighted race feature. Mm -hmm. We then. Um, realize that these machines, when a ballot goes in there, creates an image of the ballot. And we started educating the public on this concept of a ballot image. And then the AI on the machine actually reads the dots. So it's not a human being reading it, except in the case where something needs to be adjudicated. And then I found out, again, this is right away from September. Does Massachusetts have like the QR codes that come out so it's not a verifiable ballot? Do you know? I don't, I don't know about that. I yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't speak to that. Okay. But what we do know is that the machines, you know, create an image, mm -hmm. and which is photographed, and then the machine does image processing and AI to figure out where the dots are. So if you got to vote, I got to vote. Anyway, but I also found out, according to a law called 52 U.S.C. 20701, which was passed 50 years ago by a Democrat majority, which actually encouraged audits, which said, "Hey, we want." It was very enthusiastic about audits, and it said that uh, all data in connection with a federal election must be preserved for 22 months. So I went with a one of my volunteers um, to the Secretary of State's office, I think on September 9th. This is, so we're, we're moving very quickly. And we had decided to move our campaign to a write-in campaign also, because we had so much support in the general election. And with a video camera, I go to the Secretary of State's office and I said, I, I would like the ballot images. And we issued a formal FOIA. And their response was, oh, we deleted those. Okay, but I issued the formal FOIA and a series of email interactions, which I'll get to, 
The Secretary of State is nonchalantly admitting they don't have to save the ballot images. And I said, where's the law that you don't have to zip? All right, and I'll get back to that. But anyway, we moved our campaign to a write-in campaign. And I want to play that video for you, and you'll see sort of the, let me bring this up here. Uh, you know, it'll give your audience sort of a the background to this. Let me bring this up. Um, I think I can share this screen here. On okay, so here we go. On September 1st, the working people of Massachusetts rose up to elect one of their own for U.S. Senate. They united beyond black and white, beyond left and right, to unleash a movement for truth, freedom, health. 3,000 volunteers, 10,000 lawn signs, 20,000 bumper stickers, millions of phone calls, massive rallies, over 20,000 donations, funding highway billboards, ads on social media, radio and network TV, making Dr. Shiva for Senate a household name. The people of Massachusetts were headed for a landslide victory. But on the eve of election night, Secretary of State Galvin spread disinformation saying only 150,000 would vote in the Republican primary, 100,000 less than 2018. On election night, Shiva for Senate won in Franklin County by nearly 10%, but lost in every other county by 20% to an invisible opponent, neither heard nor seen, had no lawn signs, no bumper stickers, no organization, in short, no campaign. In Franklin County, ballots were counted mainly by hand. In all other counties, mainly digital scanners generated ballot images tabulated by electronic software. Evidence comparing number of votes to voters revealed blatant fraud. In Boston, 4,000 more votes than voters. In Newton, 1,700 more votes than voters. More votes than voters in every city for which Shiva for Senate received data. Mathematicians and data analysts discovered a completely improbable frequency pattern of voting revealing the software for electronic tabulation was set to reduce Shiva for Senate votes by 50% and increase their votes by 20%. More disturbing, ballot images were destroyed. Federal law demands all records, documents generated in connection with an election must be retained for 22 months. Massachusetts violated federal law. The establishment does not want one of us, working people, to represent us. When we win, they cheat. When we win, they rig their software to steal our democracy. You now have a choice. Accept election fraud, accept corruption, or fight. We choose to fight to escalate our movement for truth, freedom, health by leading a write-in campaign for Dr. Shiva for U.S. Senate to unite working people to build a defiant movement to expose and destroy their system of power, profit, and control. Join us. Write in Dr. Shiva for U.S. Senate now or by November 3rd. It's time for us. This is Dr. Shiva and I approve this message. So Todd, we put, we had these cards, we put two million of those out, it's way before the Trump stuff, way before, you know, November. So, so that's in September, so we, we're, we're, we're in a general election. And in the middle of this, um, I share those four communications with the Secretary of State, right? Because we're still pursuing what the hell happened in the primary. Yeah. And it, and that was in Twitter. I've never been thrown off, never been ever suspended since 2007. Stellar record on Twitter, right? And right when I shared those four e email records documenting the Secretary of State admitting she deleted ballot images, and the tweet I put out was, you know, Massachusetts deleted 
ballots hyphen ballot images because ba- the ballot images are at that point the electronic ballots. Right. Immediately starts going viral and I get suspended. And one of these fact-checking organizations puts out a news story uh, saying, oh, Dr. Shiva's lying, ballots were not deleted. I never said ballots, I said ballot images. You know, they conflated. And as a part of that, what they ended up in a, in a blessing in disguise, saying they had contacted the Secretary of State and she had told them she had contacted Twitter. Government contacting a private company to deplatform a U.S. Senate candidate in the middle of his election. The biggest, highest violation of free speech, right? The First Amendment. I didn't understand enough about election fraud, election integrity in terms of legally and how to frame that lawsuit, but I understood the First Amendment. We tried to get lawyers in Massachusetts. No one wanted to take it on. So I said, I'll represent myself pro se. I had to learn case law. And we wrote a preliminary injunction hearing according with a lawsuit in federal court. And as you, many people know, many lawyers will tell you, judges do not like to hear PI hearings, preliminary injunctions. They just, they, don't, they want to toss them out. Well, the judge agreed to hear this. And so on October 30th, uh, I think two days before that the judge hears our case, it's me against three Harvard lawyers from the Secretary of State's office. We, we were suing the Secretary of State for what they had done. And in that hearing, we have cross-examination with the social media director of the Secretary of State, and she, this young gal, blurts out, because the judge asked her, well, how did you decide to deplatform him? She goes, oh, we saw he was doing this misinformation. And then he goes, what did you do next? Oh, we have a special portal. And we logged onto that portal, and he said, wait a minute, what are you talking about? He goes, maybe I'm old, I'm 72, but I still believe in something called the First Amendment. Right. And so that's when we found out that they had this thing called a partner support portal. All right? And the judge was peeved, and he issues an order that they will stop doing this, and that, you know, uh, so I can get back on Twitter. Unfortunately, for a month I'm off Twitter all this is happening, and I get back on Twitter on November 4th, which is right after the election. Okay? Sure. But it was in that lawsuit, in that testimony, which we, which we got out there, that we had discovered for the first time that government has an unholy alliance with big tech, all right? And after I'm back, you know, I'm tweeting on all sorts of stuff on the, you know, we were building the movement against the whole jabs and all this stuff. And on February 1st, I once again, because people are very interested what's going on in this case, because we still had the lawsuit. And I share those four emails and talk about what we had discovered this government unholy alliance. And boom, I am now permanently banned. February 1st, we go back into court on Monday and we said, Your Honor, when they told you that they were gonna comply, they didn't tell you that once they told Twitter, Twitter put this into their algorithms. Anytime I would share those images, nail him, right? Because they, they can track images and watch things. And the judge didn't understand this, but he got it. And he said, Dr. Shiva, in order for me to give you relief now, you need to also make defendants be Twitter. Right before it was just the government. So now, but we also discovered not only did the state of Massachusetts call Twitter using this partner support portal, but there was another organization called the National Association of State Election Directors, which is an organization that manages all the machines and certifies them. A woman called Amy Cohen was also contacted, who was ahead of that. And she had also used the full force of all 50 states to deplatform me. 
So we also brought them into the case. Those are now as NASID, the Secretary of State, and Twitter. And that hearing was set for late May. All right. So during this time, Todd... May 2021, okay? Yeah. So during this time, I'm doing, you know, I have to represent myself. Again, no lawyer wants to take it on mm-hmm. because lawyers don't want to take on the government, right? Because they are in cahoots with the government, most of them. Most of them. Most of them are. Yeah. And they don't want to piss off judges. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to lose their business context, right? And that's whatever, for their reason. But anyway, we took it on. I started learning case law, became my own lawyer. And we found all this case law and we submitted seven claims. One was, hey, I want to get back on tw- Twitter. Number two, I was, because of what I had discovered, I wanted to hold these government officials personally accountable. Personally, in personal capacity, oh, yeah, sure. and pierce the veil of what's called qualified immunity. It's very hard to do because you have to show that they consciously made these decisions and there are certain predicates of law. And I had found all that. Very solid case, even though it's hard to overcome qualified immunity. The night before my end of May hearing, I'm trying to figure out what the hell is this partner support portal? I couldn't find anything. Lo and behold, this is why I believe there's a God. Literally on the midnight, I found a set of documents, which I'm gonna share with you guys. And those set of documents are called playbooks. And these playbooks are a set of five playbooks. The authors of them were the defendants, the Secretary of State's office. So you found these online? I found them on, a, initially I found them on some remote server in Britain because I found out that the general counsel of Twitter and Twitter had created this portal for parliamentarians in UK to use it against UK citizens mm-hmm. to censor them and observe them. And then that was put into these playbooks, which I found on a Harvard server, okay, at the Belfer Institute. And if you look at the authors of this, the authors of this were Twitter legal, whereas Amy Cohen was Michelle Tassinari. All these people who were in the courtroom saying, oh, we don't know them, we don't know them, playing Mickey the freaking dunce. They all knew each other. They had created, along with others, which I'm going to share with you guys, so we had found, as I'll show with you, and all of this is documented on winbackfreedom.com for the last two years. So when The Intercept and Tucker Carlson, which we'll get to, are trying to say, ooh, this is DHS leaks. Tucker knew about this because I sent him an email on October 30th and to Glenn Greenwald. All these guys, they sat on it. And we'll talk about why they do this. But the bottom line is it was, I mean, this was, I mean, I'm running my company, going to bed, probably getting two hours of sleep, being my own lawyer, investigating all, and putting, and you know what it takes to do briefs, okay? Sure. So real quick, what happened in the election? Was there cheating in the, in the general as well for you, again, in your race? The New York Times reported we got close to 50,000 write-in votes, which is unheard of. Yeah. God knows how many votes we actually got, Todd. Yeah. Okay? okay? And that was unheard of. Okay? Yeah. But, you know, we, we, didn't ha- we didn't also, we should have, what we should have done was also put our forces into the poll rooms, watching as the write-ins came in. Mm-hmm. But we were a force to be reckoned with. And you have to understand the Republicans colluded with the Democrats. Well, of course, it's happening all yeah. the time. And, yeah. and, and the guy who's the head of the state committee, a guy called, we call him Dirty Deal, is a guy who Trump just endorsed. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I told Trump this guy's a effing scumbag And when I had a meeting with Trump. But Trump just gives endorsements left and right without researching them as long as people, I think, fund Save America, okay? So it's another nonsense. But anyway, yeah. so the bottom line is, 
we are in this lawsuit, and the night before we discover these playbooks, and I go into the hearing on the morning, and it was supposed to be a two-hour hearing. You know, I think a thousand people showed up on Zoom. Everyone was there. And right, I have to give my opening statement, and I hold up the playbooks, which I'll show you. And I say, Your Honor, all of these defendants have lied. They claim they didn't know each other. I said, these playbooks show that they have created the domestic censorship infrastructure in the United States to censor every American, to launder censorship using this technology infrastructure through Twitter. In fact, I said, these playbooks are the standard operating procedures. They're the actual manuals and of how they will conduct censorship. And so the court case goes on, the judge is flabbergasted. Court case goes on the whole day. And the next morning, because he didn't have a chance to absorb this, he comes into court. He said, you know, I got up at six in the morning and I read every one of Dr. Shiva's, you know, the playbooks. And he said, this, and you can read it in the transcript, he goes, this case will be taught in every constitutional law class. And then he proceeded to ask me, he goes, Dr. Shiva, you've done this whole case by yourself. And he goes, I have the right to appoint you a constitutional lawyer. Now, you have to understand the Secretary of State of Massachusetts, a guy called William F. Galvin. He's been there for 40, 50 years almost. Mm -hmm. He's known as a prince of darkness. Mm. Okay? He's like in the bowels of Massachusetts swamp. So what we had discovered was something so powerful that the judge, and at that time I said, oh, the judge wants to help us out because we've won. He gives us an attorney who, remember, we had seven claims, not only to get on Twitter, and I decide to listen to the judge. We take this attorney on, and then we had about seven weeks to now file additional briefs because the judge wanted me to get back on Twitter. That would be a landmark event, and he wanted me to type my briefs. Well, what ends up happening, Todd, is three days before my briefs are due, I'm asking my attorney, hey, where's, did you do all the case law? Did you do all the case law? And then three days before, he goes, well... You know, you should drop all those other claims against the government. Let's just get right. you back on the plan, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And it was a honeypot the judge had done because he just wanted, they wanted to toast their Martinez and Martha's Vineyard and say, we let this guy back on Twitter. Didn't we protect the amendment? But it had, the case had become way beyond Twitter from what I've discovered, and I'll share with you. It had become, become about everything my parents came here to the United States about, that you could speak freely. You weren't a low caste member, right? Same thing they did to the J6 guys. They gave them. Right. What we had discovered was this complete infrastructure between government and all of big tech. Twitter was my thing, but we exposed everything. And when you looked at the meager crap the DHS leaks guys did, it's like garbage. And the fact that they didn't even cite our work gets into the much more insidiousness of what's actually going on, which we'll talk about. Let me, for your audience, let me just share with everyone the depth of what we discovered here, Todd, okay? So people understand this. And everyone can see this, you know, it's all fully documented. It's been up for two years, over two years. So if I go to winbackfreedom.com, let me, uh, yeah, so um, let me go back here. And what you'll see here is this is a site, again, Um, I don't know if you know, Todd, I I also have a degree in art and design, so we created this stuff. So I I love doing website design. And this basically shows the masses, and this this is me. Uh, You don't sleep, do you? Huh? I said you don't sleep, do you? I don't. I I, I get five hours. I've been like that since I was a kid. But anyway, this really shows that Twitter is at the end of this process, okay? 
Right. And censorship is laundered by these state actors, okay? And if you read, it's like there we say, this is a first lawsuit to expose a government censors U.S. citizens' uh, speech on Twitter, okay? Following the deep platform of Dr. Shiva, testimony hearings and federal, elicited how the government and Twitter created an infrastructure for government to launder censorship. Where was the intercept then? Where was Tucker Carlson? And we sent Tucker all of this. All right? And if you read the lawsuit, I just want to share a piece of it right here. It says, right, right away, this case about the government surveilling and blacklisting a minority political candidate and then eventually silencing his speech in the midst of his U.S. Senate campaign because he criticized government officials, thereby violating his First Amendment rights. One of the central points we say in starting it's October 2017, this is a key point, and we found this in their documents in the playbooks. Government officials concluded that though the nature of U.S. elections was decentralized, this was a problem for them, Todd, because it was spread across 10,000 jurisdictions, many different methods, paper and electronic, was the best defense to cyber hacking, right? This diversity. They needed to eliminate such decentralization because it was a hindrance to their desire to establish and use a centralized infrastructure with non-government entities, NGOs, to fill the gap between government agencies who had no power to curtail speech. They, see, they knew government could not curtail speech, so they created these NGOs. And this is where Pierre Omidyar comes in, the guy who started The Intercept and who started some of those NGOs, and federal intelligence agencies who were forbidden from curtailing speech in order to censor speech by surveilling, blacklisting, and silencing citizens domestically. So you're not supposed, government's not supposed to surveil and censor people domestically. They can do it to foreign people. I said the defendants in this case were architects of this infrastructure. The defendants and their allies co-authored the foundational documents, the playbooks, at Harvard's Belfer Center for Defending Democracy testified to the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee to lobby for such infrastructure and forge relationships with billionaires like, including Pierre Omidyar, through his democracy fund. Pierre Omidyar is also the funder, the founder, and I believe last time I checked on the 990, 99% owner of The Intercept, which is now breaking the story about censorship, which yeah. Pierre Omidyar is the one who funded that thing, okay? As well as- I think they're doing that. Well, I'll talk about it, okay? Let me, so, but the bottom line is I want everyone to know that this was out for two years. Where was Tucker Carlson? Where was The Intercept? And if you go to the depths of it, let me show, so you can see, the, you can see the detail here, okay? This is far different than what these leaks guy put out. This is all they put out, okay? Facebook, this, just a bunch of PowerPoint slides. This is all they have. What did we expose? Compare that to what we shared here. All the actual playbooks, okay? Mm -hmm. And here are the playbooks. Let me go to one of them. So here's playbook number one, okay? Oops, here we go, all right? Here's a playbook right here, all right? So what do we see in this playbook, all right? What we see here, Todd, is the actual, this is one of the documents, okay? These are manuals for how you would censor them. And look, and you know the guy who was ahead of this is uh, the, organ the, the, the chairman of this was Robbie Mook out of the Clinton campaign. Yeah. All right, so this is a playbook for influence operations. Very interesting term. It's like an intelligence term. So you're basically going to brand American citizens as influence operators, as though they're doing something evil, which means they have influence on social media. Guys like me, okay, right. and others. And so this is the first playbook, which it says how you will brand someone as an influence operator. So here's, again, the cover. Let me go to page four. Page four. Set, look at the contributors. 
the defendant we're suing, Twitter Legal, okay? All of these guys were, were people who architected this, people out of CISA, okay? People out of Homeland Security, all right? Now, let's go look at how they decide what, so they define what is an influence operator as people who spread disinformation. People are skilled influence operators, often known deliberately, del deliberately to spread information, highly public spaces. Who are they to decide all this? So they could brand everyone, anyone as an IO, okay? So they describe, they create the theory of the concept of an influence operator, and then they go on to say what is, what are misinformation incidents? And look at what they have. Anyone who says that people who run elections are corrupt. So if you say that, you're going to be branded as an I.O., all right? So that's the first playbook. Now, if we go to the second playbook, all right, right here, let's go look at that playbook. Well, this playbook, Todd, second playbook, is even more detailed. And this playbook is part two. How do you respond once you've tagged someone as an enemy of the quote-unquote state, American citizens? What do you do? Well... The first step you do is you recognize that there are four stages of countering these people, all right? And what are those four stages? And you'll see right here. Those four stages are, uh, oops, sorry about this. There are four stages, let me go back up here. The four, these are the four stages, Todd, okay? Four stages are you anticipate for them, you prepare, you then identify them, you then respond, and you continue monitoring them. Okay? It's not something that just ends. And how do you prepare? Well, you watch for certain keywords. In my case, those images that I put up, right? You tag them. Then, how do you actually figure out if they're a threat? Well, they have a detailed threat analysis. They call it severity. Do they have an established voice? Well, I would do tweets, Todd, and I would get 20, 30,000 retweets. I had massive credibility, an MIT PhD, right? I'm not some just random guy, right? People say, oh, PhD guy, he can't just be some crazy guy. Volume, 400,000 followers, 20,000 retweets. So I was tagged according to this, and I shared all of this in court. All of this is in testimony. So they have, how do you respond? You can brand someone as high threat, medium threat, or low. See that, Todd? Yeah, I do. So this was in the court case prior to... Uh whatever happened to the resolution of that case, right? Yeah, 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 in May. So this is when we brought all this up in May, okay? Yeah. okay. Now, you go and you see what, how did they, so th what I was t telling the judge was, your honor, look, the first time I put that up, I went into a high severity threat, and then, then they tell how you actually respond, okay? You respond by using the portal on Facebook, and we went into gross detail, and we talked about all this with the DHS leaks, guys. It's just one little sliver. We talked about the partner support portal. This is all in there. Google has a similar one. And we talked about exactly what they do, okay? Step by step by step, okay? And this is the severity level that they did. So what they did in my case, Todd, was when they saw all this, I went into a high threat mode. And look what they did. So first they activated in the first incident. Then they prioritize, and then I was continually monitored. That's why they deplatformed me the second time. Yeah. So we laid out everything for the judge. Then we, in the middle of the lawsuit, we also discovered the long fuse report. We came out in mid-June. And this report confirms everything that the playbook had done. And in fact, in this report, if you go through it, 
I was branded as a super spreader, okay? Yeah. And this report was funded by Pierre Omidyar, the Atlantic Council, all of it. So if you go to 221, myself, Breitbart, I think Trump, six people were well, branded. Media was tied with Project Veritas. Okay, so, so we were branded in here. So when I put all of this together with the playbooks, what emerged out of that was this diagram, which, we, which is in court testimony. So I was now able, this is like a PhD piece of work, okay? I put how it works, how election officials and government actors coordinate with platform to silence speech. Don't you think the DHS leaks guy should have talked about this? Yeah, this was two years ago. Two years ago. So here's the Secretary of State government. Here is the chief legal counsel. And she's the one who contacted Amy Cohen, but she acted like she's just some, oh, I'm just the chief legal counsel. She sits on the board of CISA. And I was exposing her because in those emails, she was the one who said, oh, I deleted all the ballot images, okay? Now, CISA is the one that Trump created. It wasn't done by Obama, Trump created this. So all this infrastructure was put in place, supported at the Belfer School, Microsoft, which is the only guy that they talk about in that report, okay? The DHS leaks guys. But this is the entire infrastructure. The This think tank across Kennedy School, across Microsoft, across Harvard, Stanford, put together all of this documentation, which we discovered. And this documentation is the architecture of the technology infrastructure where government right here, DHS, here's Dr. Shiva, can launder censorship through these NGOs. You see, this is an NGO. So they say, hey, this guy's tweeting against us. They file a report here through the partner support portal so they can say, oh, we had nothing to do with it. Okay, and guess who funded the Center for Internet Security? Pierre Omidyar, right here. Just for our audience sake, we ran into Omidyar in Ukraine in 2020 when the Biden revenge list came out. We did a lot of research and uh, they were all over what was happening in Ukraine as well. So you see Pierre Omidyar, the billionaire who funded who, who eBay, by the way, he bought PayPal. Okay, quote unquote colleague of Musk, okay? But Omidyar is the one who funded this infrastructure. Omidyar is the one who funded this infrastructure, which is the, allows a central piece of this censorship network we discovered. And we brought this out. Well, are the two reporters who want to probably win a freaking Pulitzer now and, and everyone's promoting them, are they going to bring out the fact that their founder of The Intercept is the one who also founded The Intercept? So that's the big issue here. The big issue here that when you uncover this is why is this not being brought out into the public? Why is this very material fact that now, and I'll, I'll, and I'll show, and why is this material fact of the founder of The Intercept, and by the way, we know intelligence agencies are very clever. They have proxies like an OMADR who create an organization, we're gonna fight, we're gonna do investigative reporting. And the same guy over here is funding the censorship network. And now these two freaking reporters, ooh, we discovered DHS leaks, and they give you a little sliver of it, okay? And that sliver of what they've released ignores the fact that the censorship network that they were talking about was funded by their boss who created The Intercept. And I have a th thesis on this, and I wanna share that with you, how all of this works. And uh, so let me tell you, as a systems guy, I think it's time to educate all of America 
on how this actually works. So we stop giving our freedom and our credibility to people like Tucker Carlson and these guys. So think about it this way, Todd. Think about there's the whole truth, right? The whole thing. The whole iceberg, right? What we discovered in 2020, what we've put out there. And we didn't get access to the big megaphone, right? So what do these guys do? Well, they know there's a whole truth. So this is the process of how these intelligence agencies work. First of all, they conceal the whole truth. They don't talk about it. We're, we're writing letters to Glenn Greenwald. We're sending letters to uh, Tucker. I have all the emails. Yeah. Nothing. So they conceal. That's a form of concealment. Then they delay two years. Step two. Because... They conceal it because had they used their megaphone to talk about it, we would have done a lot more things in 2020. They delay. Step two of this intelligence process. Step three, they steal it. They hijack it, which is what The Intercept just did. And then they go, they have their megaphone. By the way, this occurs sometimes in academia. A real researcher who does all the work in a small state college, a big researcher at Harvard will literally plagiarize his work, never reference him, and uses his megaphone so in the future everyone goes to him. And they just give a glimmer of what took place. And then the masses say, oh, we got a lot of information. Ooh, Tucker shared it, right? So they hijack and they output out the half-truth. They know people are in this cycle of rapid news, so they forget about it, and you only get the little tip of the iceberg. And that's ignorance. And so what I believe as a system scientist is there's the truth information, the ignorance is this process that I've just shared with you. This is how they create ignorance. So DHS leaks is an aspect of ignorance, giving a little sliver. And then people are in illusion or confusion, and they say, wow, oh my God, the government does this. We can't do anything. They get desperate. Or they go into the left to right. Ooh, Tucker released this. He, he's our savior. When Tucker, all we know, as all we, you know, is all documented, he's, he's pretty close friends with Hunter Biden too, Okay. And then people get complacent. So what has emerged out of this, Todd, and I want to talk about the solution. I'll come back to this. There is a way out of this. So, you know, as a, I, I, this is not about doomsday and we can't do anything. I'll, I'll talk before we're over about the solution. But fundamentally, when you look at this, this is sort of the big thing everyone should absorb. The Intercept is founded by Pierre Omidyar who is the same guy in our lawsuit, it's in testimony. He's the one who funded the Center for Internet Security, which is the nonprofit, the NGO that they talk about that they needed to fill in the gap between government and private entities. So government reports through this sort of elusive non-NGO. So is the intercept? The intercept should be exposed for what they are. They're full of shit. A, they concealed, they plagiarized, they give a little sliver. Then Tucker's part of this nonsense. Everyone should go really study Tucker Carlson's history. Delay, delay, he's a master grifter. And no one's exposing Pierre Omidyar. As you said, he's been involved in Ukraine. He's been involved in other things to do anti-quote-unquote Russia stuff. He's everywhere, this guy. And... We have to now start considering. He's the one who bought PayPal, and PayPal's restricting other people, right? Right. So, again, when you take a systems approach beyond left and right, as you know, Todd, we talked about the, the immune system and the VAC stuff way ahead, 
Way, we're the ones who expose Fauci a year before, you know, Robert Kennedy was watching which way the wind blows. We're the ones who exposed the big pharma alliance way before, you know, the real realities of it being revenue based and what Trump was really doing. So when you take a scientific systems approach, which we want to educate everyone on. So I want to let everyone know the reason I have this prescience is not because, you know, I'm some, you know, sage is because when you take an engineering systems approach, you can actually reveal this. Now, let me tell you something, and I'm going to share this with you because when you go to Pierre Omidyar's Democracy Fund page, you'll find something fascinating, okay? So when I say the only way to, this is where the elites want us to be. They use this process to use people like Tucker Carlson, to use the intercept. This is set up by intelligence agencies to give us this ignorance. So people leave, oh, we have democracy in America. Oh, we got the news. Too little, too late. And this is the mode of ignorance, which leads people to illusion. And the establishment wants people to be desperate, taking a gun and shooting people, doing some terrorist action, or being in the Trump camp or the Biden camp, or being complacent. They love people here, but they do not want people to learn knowledge. They don't want people to be able to look at information, what I call the science of systems, systems thinking. And I want everyone to listen to this carefully. Systems thinking is the ability to get to wisdom and clarity. So you become an activist, you start talking to your neighbors, you start finding real solutions, and you get organized. Pierre Omidyar, let me tell you, when you go research him, he runs a democracy fund, go to the bottom of their webpage. You know what they have on it? System syncing. He knows the power of system syncing. Look, Todd, when I um, was at MIT, uh, the elites go to places like MIT, the Harvard Belfer School, Tufts, and they learn the science of systems. 10,000 people know this. Kissinger knows this, okay? Condoleezza Rice knows this. And the science of systems, they teach to the elites, and it's like you have a nuclear weapon of how to think ver versus thinking left or right, pro or anti. That system of ignorance is how they keep the masses in, a, in this imbecilic mode of Trump, Biden, DeSantis, that every in a recurring process of left and right. But Pierre Omidyar knows system thinking. I learned system thinking. So what I ended up doing over, since our campaign is we created a whole movement now, a whole system called Truth, Freedom, and Health because it's the only way we're going to win. There's no other way to beat these guys because they have a, they have a nuclear weapon and we're running around with sticks and stones. Okay? Yeah. So if you go there, he says, why system sinking? So I'm telling you, these people are very sharp. They know what they're doing. And if you think about it, he starts the intercept, and he also is part of that domestic censorship infrastructure. This is no accident. These are very clever monkeys. I, I have a quick question. Yep. You know, I've, since 2020, I mean, a lot of us were woken up, and, you know, we were deplatformed off 25 Silicon Valley platforms. Uh, within a period of days. Uh, but I have been telling people just to get off these platforms and start a new economy because you're giving them data, you're giving them money, you're giving, allowing them to surveil. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so... so, so We should use it to, against them, and I think that's bullshit. But go ahead. Yes, yeah, so let me tell you what we've done. You, It's, it, it's a great segue. Um, so what we've done is... Um, you know, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Todd, you know, I, you know, back in uh, 1993, remember I mentioned I started this company called uh, Echo Mail? Mm -hmm. Well, when we, when we did Echo Mail, um, you know, I ended up uh, building a data center here to service the largest companies in the world, okay, in terms of their infrastructure. So we, let me just get back to this thing. So 
we built, ended up, so, so the core of it, when you peel away all the layers, Todd, you get to this very fundamental understanding that we need to educate people on how to think, not what to think, right? And that how to think is the knowledge of the science of systems. Do you follow what I'm saying? The elites know the science of systems. If we don't teach our people how to system think, they're going to be drawn into every other recurring movement, either some imbecile politician or the next entertainer like Trump, okay? So we want to break people, no matter how much you like Trump. I like Trump. I've hung out with him. Nice guy. But he's part of this theater, okay? Do you, so, do you think that is intentional or he just gets... I don't, I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to go into it. Bottom line is just look at the results. If you and I were running a company, no matter how much we like the guy, look at his results. Nothing happened to Fauci. He brought in all the biggest scum, Bolton, Tillerson. I mean, come on, you can't. And come on, Ivanka and Jared. Jared got a $2 billion nice deal with the Saudis. Yeah. What really happened? What happened to everyday working Americans? That's what people should ask. It doesn't matter whether we like Trump and whether he gets us riled up. It's irrelevant. But what I've created, just like we created Cytosolve, just like we created email, we created a system called Truth, Freedom, Health. It's a system, Todd. And what Truth, Freedom, and Health is, it's basically, in many ways, I would say it's probably an innovation which helps us aggregate all this knowledge of over 50 years. So what is truth, freedom, and health? So truth, freedom, and health is a system of foundational knowledge. Let me stop this for a second. I'll take you to the website where it's going to help any citizen on the planet understand how the forces of power, profit, and control actually work. Okay? And so if you go to truthfreedomhealth.com and... Uh, this is not meant to be a sales pitch. I just want to let people know this resource is there. It basically says a man who invented email now delivers truth, freedom, and health. And what does this system do? The goal is to make people street smart. So they go beyond left and right, uh, Todd, beyond pro and anti. And what we've done is the problem that we want to solve is that people need to understand the science of systems. So what we say is now we have about 360,000 people globally. We're not trying to convince people. People come bottoms up. We have amazing stories of transformation and our approach actually wins. It is our approach of taking the system search, why we have all these victories versus desperation. But as I mentioned, what we're doing is we want to break people out of this pyramid <clears throat> to this pyramid, Todd, okay? And the way you get people there is through learning the foundations of systems. It's not any one thing. So what we've done is I used to teach this course at MIT, Todd, to PhD people. I've made it accessible to anyone. So people are now getting access to the same knowledge elites get. And what we've done is people get access to the entire course. I used to teach this again at MIT. People can learn it on their own, but they literally get an engineering systems education. They understand what a system is. They understand how the system science goes back 10,000 years. They understand how you can apply system science to politics, that truth, freedom, and health is a system. Without freedom, the forces of motion, of information, matter, and energy, you cannot do science. Science is the ability to understand the inner, you know, you take ideas and you have dialogue, and when you have real science and freedom, then you get to health. So it's a very powerful set of principles. And then people learn why we need to build a bottoms-up movement. We have no choice. Yeah. And then we give away all the books. People can get it on Amazon. I give it away. We give away people the theory. We actually created a tool where people can apply system science to heal their own bodies, independent of all these diets. So it's a very powerful program. People then, then we have learn, teach, and serve. We have a community. And to your point, we also get people on the ground to hand out flyers, to teach people about elections or vaccines. 
It's a, it's an activism model. And then we've created our own version of Twitter, our own version of Facebook, but we don't sell this. It's only internal. So it is a complete system, Todd, and it is the only way out of this. If anyone else were doing it, I wouldn't be doing this, but no one else is. The bottom line is we got to educate people on a systems approach, and we have to create a community to do this. That's what we've done, Todd. So if you look at the journey here, the, you know, to sort of summarize this, the mainstream media is part of the intelligence agencies now. I mean, this is not news. I mean, you can go look at, this has been talked about in New York. So when you look at a Pierre Omidyar, when you look at an intercept, they put out these little dribbles to manipulate the masses to think they're actually doing something of value. But what they're actually doing is letting us go back to think, ooh, someone else is doing it for us. But they're doing jack shit, excuse my language, right? Trust the plan. Trust the plan. And that's what Trump did for four years. So Americans didn't rise up and build movements. So what Trump served to do was keep the, Obama was used for the first eight years to sucker in working people, black and white. Well, that didn't work. And then after they used the masses on that, now we're gonna bring in a white guy. Look, if you believe elections are selections, you gotta apply it to Trump too. Now, was he, did he knowingly do it or unknowingly? That's a different issue. But what did Trump actually do? He talked about make America great, got all working class people riled up. But what did he actually deliver? Lockdowns, no firing of Fauci, big pharma explosive growth, and so on. And he printed $6.9 trillion in one term. Trump, uh, Obama printed $8.2 trillion. Yeah. They extended the reserve currency of printing money. And you need, in order to have reserve currency, you need to have the connection of the hegemony of oil and gas. That's what Ukraine is about. And in order to have that, you need war. That's this triangle. And again, if, like you said, you go look at Pierre Omidyar, the guy's everywhere. So the bottom line, what I want to share with people is DHS leaks is dribble. It's dribble, dribble, dribble. And everyone, and those guys do it, and someone will probably give them the Pulitzer. Yeah. When it's, they plagiarize the work, they've given dribble. So a guy like Pierre Omidyar wants to have it both ways. He gets to fund the censorship network, and then he gets to have his intercept writers win awards and get all the limelight for exposing in a dribbling manner the censorship network he helped fund. So if you had to tell uh, working class Americans uh, three things they should do right away, I guess get into your matrix, what, what would that be? This is the number one thing working class Americans need to do. Number one, recognize that it has always been, oh, since the time of slaves, it's been bottoms up movements that have always changed the world. And you can go look at as early in the United States as 1886 when four American workers were hanged for fighting for the work, eight hour workday. And that was the start of May Day. Everywhere else in the world, working people pointed to that day in commemoration of those four American workers. Everywhere in the world today, workers May Day celebrated, except in America, where it was made Law Day by Reagan. It's quite atrocious. And by the 1900s, those workers' movements rose up, and that is why during the 1900s to 1970, the GDP grew, because the elites were so afraid of American workers rising up, we had over 100 million people striking and 11,000 strikes. However, in 1950, the elites, the left and the right, Republicans and Democrats, wanted to destroy those movements. So what did they do? The McCarthy guys, 
McCarthy came from Wisconsin, which was another place where seven workers were shot for fighting for the eight-hour workday. McCarthy branded any time you said workers unite as communist, Marxist, right? So they made it hard for workers to build these bottoms-up movements. And then the left, Democrats, took over the unions. You see, they chopped the legs off the workers by calling you a Marxist and a communist if you wanted to build a bottoms-up movement. And then they infiltrated the bottoms-up unions top-down. So by the 1970s, what occurred? By the 1970s, you have the destruction of bottoms-up unions. And between 1970 to today, there's only been about 900 strikes, maybe 2 million workers protesting. And during this period is when two American pies got created. One for the elites, which has grown, and one which has shrunk. The RAND report that came out said $47 trillion got, yeah, there was socialism for the elites. $47 trillion got transmitted from working people's reduction in wages to the elites like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, et cetera. That's the first thing, bottoms-up movement. Now, how do you build a bottoms-up movement? This is a critical thing. Do you follow the Kennedys? Do you follow Bernie Sanders? Do you follow Donald Trump? No. Building a movement is physics. Building a bridge, you have to understand Newton's equations. Building an airplane, we were falling off cliffs until we figured out Bernoulli's principles. Well, this son of low caste Indians who grew up in New Jersey, was fortunate to get all that education, has figured out the scientific principles of how you build that movement. That is a knowledge of system science, which the elites learn. They learn it to make sure we don't build movements. They learn it to subjugate and enslave us. So number two, that infrastructure exists. You don't have to go to MIT, go to Truth, Freedom, and Health. I try to give it away for free, Todd. No one wanted to, <laughs> no one wanted to take it, and I can't charge tens of thousands. So we said, hey, give a hundred bucks, and when you take the course, you pass it, you can give it to as many kids for free. I went to India, and I gave it to a village for 1,500 kids. So we have a model that people can see some value, and the, and the most important thing is, so the third thing is people need to build community again. So number one, understand we have to build a bottoms-up movement. Understand that you need, to, you need to learn how to do that. Go to truthfreedomhealth.com. Number three, we have to come back together as human beings. The future is going to be offline, which means you go to your neighbor, you talk to them, you educate them. It's a learn, teach, and serve model. So I think we've cracked the code on this, Todd. We're not going to do it by... Oh, who's going to run in 2024? Who's going to run? To the extent you want to build a movement, elections can be valuable. But to the extent you think you're going to change something by being in office when the foundational elements of it are corrupt, it's an illusion. So we have to go back to the heart of what it means to be a working person, which is to build a bottoms-up movement. And, you know, Malcolm X said something interesting. He said, it's not that we're outnumbered. It's that they're better organized. Okay, so well, I just you know I just put up on uh, Facebook. You know we have such a movement. People have said, Dr. Shiva, you should run for Senate. You should run for president. More than likely, we're definitely uh, thinking. You know, I, I I just put a note out to Elon Musk. I said, Elon, you should put me back up. You know, because I'm gonna more than likely we want to launch our campaign against a fake Indian again. Elizabeth Warren's coming up, and. If we do that, we're going to do it in a way it's to build a movement, Todd. Right. But it's not – the movement is what needs to come first. If the election process gets people excited, cool. But we have to build a bottoms-up movement, neighbor to neighbor to neighbor. And now we have this infrastructure called truthfreedomhealth.com. We call people warrior scholars. 
You know, MIT has it METS et MANUS, which is hand and mind. We call it, you gotta be a warrior, but you gotta do the studying. You can't just go out there and try to do crap because you're gonna make mistakes. It's like trying to get off the ground in an airplane. Maybe you'll get lucky and build the right wing, but you gotta understand the physics. I have a question for you. Do you think that Hollywood's been gaslighting us with shows like Man in the High Castle, Hunger Games, basically telling us what's been going on for a couple decades? Yeah, so what, so I think, I think, you, so this is very much like DHS leaks. Todd, you're asking a great question. I think the elites psychologically have figured out if you dribble to the public what's really going on, mm -hmm. because pe most people are taught to just be observers, sit in the sidelines, and and psychologically get all the shit into them, and then news not news on and listen all night, and then feel depressed. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, I guess that's the way. So they're telling me the truth. I guess. Oh yeah, Tucker just told me we're all screwed. The government controls us. Okay, yeah, that's how it is. So what are they doing psychologically? You're being watched, you're being surveilled. And I think the elites would really like this to be like China. So, yeah. but they keep this illusion of separation of, you know, the government and private entities. That's what our lawsuit showed. But I think this imbuement of this knowledge that we're screwing you through Hollywood is another way of mesmerizing people to desperation or complacency. And that's why that diagram I showed is a very powerful diagram. It is the ignorance comes from giving you little dribbles and then you get confused and you live in delusion as though Tucker Carlson is your savior. And you then, what, what's the end step people do? They get desperate, take a gun and go shoot people, do some terrorist action. The establishment loves that because they can use that to disarm you. Or you go into this camp or this camp, or you say, I'm gonna go sit under a tree, I'm gonna go to an ashram and I'm gonna meditate. I'm gonna follow this fool Sadhguru okay, go to India. They have all these distractions. Or I'm gonna to listen to Joe Rogan, you know, he's with William Morris. Or I'm gonna to listen to Alex Jones, right? So the end result is they get people into entertainment. But what I'm saying here is we gotta build a movement, bottoms up, but you cannot build a movement without understanding the physics. There's an engineering science and their principles. So you have to go back to first principles. What are the foundations of building a movement? So yeah, I think I think the Hollywood look. I was out in Hollywood. You know, I used yeah. to be married to a woman called Fran Drescher, and and I realized after three years here that most of these people out here want to be celebrities. Very few real actors, and most celebrities are the most insecure people. They know they got a show not because they were good, because they slept with the right guy or banged Harvey Weinstein, and then cry about it later for banging him. But they got there because of lack of talent because they wanted to be celebrities. Right. And the the narcissism, the lack, the insecurities are what pervade that. So they're all they're all basically prostitutes. They can be bought, used anytime they want. The few actors that are there, you know, are very rare. Very very rare. You know, the people actually did training like a serious athlete, but those are rare. Yeah. So I want to have you back on, but um because there's a lot more to talk about. So uh, what should we talk about next time? Well, I think the next time what we should talk about is probably go into details of how we build a movement, Todd. And we can talk about the actual victories because we need to inspire people. We have many, many victories. I'd like to play some videos of actual working people and an electrician who's in our movement, you know, or school moms. We need to inspire people to recognize that 
It has always been working people who have changed the world when they united. You see, the reason our law, you see now there's these other lawsuits are talking about government and alliance. Yeah, vaccines is one thing, but what our lawsuit was about, voting is about you exercising your individual freedom and then collectively, that's powerful. So where does the lawsuit stand real quick? So what, so what ended up happening was the, our lawyer at the last minute wanted me to drop all the claims except be happy to go on Twitter. Now, 99% of people would have settled for that. I couldn't, Todd, given the infrastructure. So I said, no freaking way. I then went into court. I had, in three days, Todd, I had to write 2,000 pages of briefs. I had to fire my lawyer. And that's when I got into court. Now the judge got upset with me. And that's when I realized this was a setup. Yeah. He wanted me to just get back on Twitter. That's what Alex Berenson did. Right? I was unwilling to do that. I wanted to hold these government actors personally accountable. Mm -hmm. So he forced, he censored my lawsuit and then forced me to file just one claim. You see, he wanted to be the judge who could say, oh, I protected the Constitution. So I filed it and I walked away because I didn't want them to put me on Twitter and drop all those claims. I would have been a sellout, Todd, and I was unwilling to do that. So I'd rather now go back to independent media like you guys and tell what actually took place. It's time that we expose organizations like The Intercept. It's time that we expose people like Tucker Carlson. It is these people who exist to make sure there's no movement is built because people outsource their activism to a Tucker, outsource their activism to DHS leaks from Intercept. And this is the insidiousness of this. And I, and I believe people are smart enough to get it. And that's why I hope you guys get this news story out there and we proliferate this knowledge because it's the nuance of how the elites work. And once working people get it, we will break away from the left and the right. And if you look back at the Vietnam War, you know, for eight years, people were trying to stop the war. It was after the Chicago Convention in 1968 when Lyndon B. Johnson had cops smash the heads of those students. People, the, the, the quote unquote, the lefty students said, holy shit, it's not only the Republicans want to be imperialist, but it's also the Democrats. And when people broke away from the left and the right, that's when, quote unquote, a phase transition, a quote unquote, a revolution takes place in mind. As long as we're looking for these wings of the media, Fox or CNN or Trump or Biden, and we get caught in that theater, nothing's gonna happen. But when we unify as working people, exercising particularly the First Amendment, the Bill of Rights, which no other working group has in the world. Think about what 1776 was. For the first time, a group of working people got these rights, these inalienable rights. No one else had, man. But the First Amendment is gone. We have to recognize we have to win it back. It's not about making America great anymore. It's about winning back freedom. Well, there's a lot of movements, you know, we're involved nationally. There's a lot of movements. I think you're right, though. They just need to be more focused. They need to. All these movements are fine, but there's nothing like what we've done here. We need to go back to the physics, Todd. Fine. Have your movements, but go to Truth, Freedom, and Health and take the course. Because without that, you're going to make a mistake. You're going to follow a misleader. Everyone needs to become their own gurus now. People need to understand the physics. They need to be able to stand on their own two feet and be able to call out these charlatans on their own and not outsource their future. And then we need to get come together collectively, but people need to become freaking street smart. And they cannot, they cannot compromise on this. They cannot say, well, yeah, I guess Trump had to do that, but 
he had to do that dot, dot, dot. You see, we always make excuses for these people. No one needs to make these excuses. And that is the rub. That's the problem. People are outsourcing. So people got to take the course, Todd. I can't, it's there. And we're not here to convince anyone, but people have this knowledge base. And by the way, that knowledge base is what Pierre Omidyar learns. That's what Kissinger learns. The elite learn that knowledge base. It's, it's sort of like Prometheus, what we've done here. We bought the fire to the masses. But without this knowledge, we're going to be having sticks and stones, and they have a nuclear weapon of thinking. Dr. Shiva, thank you. We want to have you back. Uh, that was the quickest hour and 20 minutes I've done ever. So, okay. Thank you for your Great, time. Todd. Thank you. Be well. Okay. Thank you. Be the light. Thank you. Thank you.